Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. Our senior pastor, Ryan, is preaching at our Fairfax site this morning. And since you're in Terrence and Andrew in my hands, I should probably say good morning, good morning, good morning. (laughs) It is good to see you, and it is good to come to God's Word together. If you have been away for a couple weeks, or if you're a guest here this morning, let me orient you towards where we are. We are camping for about six or seven weeks in one chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, a magisterial chapter of Paul's writing where he focuses on the resurrection. And the reason we're doing this is to remind ourselves and to try to understand that the resurrection doesn't just matter for Easter Sunday, it matters for every day. And so let's pray the Lord will help us do that. Would you pray with me? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come now asking that you would do more than we could even imagine, that you would transform hearts that are sometimes stone cold and make us soft, that you would take ourselves who can be so resistant to spiritual truth and what we need to hear and open us up that you'd make us different men, different women, different children. Would you do that, we pray, in Jesus Christ's wonderful and his holy name. Amen. So this letter of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes to Christians living in the ancient city of Corinth who are still enamored by the things of their world. They, though they follow Christ, still have fundamentally accepted the narrative of their culture that sexual pleasure and lavish parties are going to lead to the fullness of life, as well as their culture's narrative that if you can amass enough power and privilege and wealth and prestige, you can insulate yourself against suffering. Now, That's false advertising, of course. It doesn't actually work out that way. But the Corinthians have have fundamentally bought into that narrative. And as Paul writes this letter to them, we need to remember that we tend to buy into that narrative. That in fact, we ourselves, by our culture's narrative, that this is the thing that will give me fullness, and this is the thing that will give me life, and It's a false narrative, but we're tempted to believe it. So the Corinthian Christians need to hear this. We need to hear this. Some of you know this because you yourself have experienced this hard lesson that fame and sex and money and all the rest overpromise and underdeliver every time. But even if you've been spared it yourself, you you can start to see it, to feel it. Let me just ask you, do you remember the name Boris Becker? Now, if you don't, or if I need to jog that memory, um, Boris Becker, owner of six Grand Slam titles, won Wimbledon his first at age 17. He was rich, he was successful, he was the tour player of the year, he has an Olympic gold medal to his name, and if you follow the sports news, a month ago was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. And after that will be deported from the UK 
due to his crimes. And his barrister in his court hearing said this. He said, the former tennis star's fall from grace has left his reputation in tatters. He said, Boris Becker has literally nothing and there's also nothing to show for what was the most glittering of sporting careers. Now, to me, maybe even more interesting is what Becker himself said in an interview some years back, not talking about his fall from grace, but talking about when he himself was on top. Listen to what he said. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything and yet they're so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. And now if, if you're not at the top, and let's admit it, statistically by definition, few of us are, it's very difficult to see what those folks who have made the top, the spiritual truth they see clearly, that it doesn't actually deliver. If you're not at the top, it's so easy to look at that ladder, whatever the ladder is, whether it's the success ladder, the money ladder, the fame ladder, the sort of prestige in your school, the social media, whatever it is, and think if I could just climb to the top of that, life is gonna be great. Never mind that the consistent testimony of the people who have topped out is no, that's not true, it's a false promise. And it's about now that the temptation could be to pat ourselves on the back, to sort of wag our finger and shake our head a little bit and say, let me take a little bit of self-righteous comfort in the fact that I'm not famous. But to do that would be to entirely miss the opportunity before us, which is to ask this question, where have I subtly but fundamentally bought into the exact same narrative the idea that if I could only get to that, life is gonna be great. That life will be fulfilling and free and everything that it might be. Where have I looked at my world's narrative and say, yes, if I could just get that, my life would be full. If I could just get that, I would be spared suffering because we're all, if you think about it, on this unbelievable quest for fullness of life. Some of us are the self-improvement junkies. One more time hack one more way to wring just a little bit more out of every day. Some of us are the serial hobbyists. You know, one year it's homemade this, that, and everything. The next year it's training for the triathlon. The next year it's like spinning vinyl records and drinking bougie coffee. And, and we somehow think we're gonna find the next thing and it's gonna make life full. Or some of us in our search for fullness in life end up in darker places, places of addiction, whether to gambling or drink or drugs or porn, or even if not addiction, to places of, of significant self-harm with exercise, with food, or, or even some of us, we hurt ourselves just for a moment so we could just feel anything at all. And, and I should stop and just say this, if you're in one of those dark places, please tell someone. You don't have to go through that alone. And in fact, I have great news for you that what this passage tells us is this search for fullness that we're all on, in the end, only leads you to Jesus. 
Because Paul is quick to tell these Corinthians and us that they're asking the world to give them something it never could. That in fact, instead of restlessly chasing the narratives of their world for fullness, they need to rest in the resurrection of Christ because it's the one thing that actually can deliver on the promises that it makes. So Paul tells them and he tells us in these verses that because we will be resurrected with Christ, we have both freedom and fullness in this life now and in the life to come for eternity. That because we'll be resurrected with Christ, we have freedom and fullness both in this life now and the life to come for eternity. And the way Paul shows us that is he gives us two theological truths about the resurrection and then helps us think about how that would apply to our life. So first, Paul points out, and it's verses 20 to 23 in our passage, that Christ is the first fruits. Well, what's that mean? First fruits. Well, that's something that would have immediately been understandable to a people who are in touch with the land, but might need a little bit of explaining to 21st century people in the DMV area. Now, understand that most all of the ancient world lived without food security. Most all of the ancient world and much of today's world lived one harvest from starvation. One failed harvest and it was over. And so the farmer does all his or her work. They tend the land, they pray for rain, they go through life, and then one day they're walking through the field or the orchard and they see that some fruit is ready to pick. Now, it's not the full harvest yet, but it's the guarantee that the harvest is here, that the harvest is coming. So you pick the fruit and you throw a massive party because it's the guarantee it's going to come through. The good times are here. It is about to, it's about to come to pass. Well, Paul says Jesus is exactly that for us. His resurrection is the down payment. It's the first fruits. It's the guarantee of the full harvest. Remember, we are in the third week of camping in this chapter. In verses 1 through 19, Paul has already, at least to his mind, and hopefully to yours and mine, proved that Jesus himself really did rise from the dead. So as far as Paul's argument is going along here, he's assuming you've gotten that point. Jesus really physically walked out of his grave, by the way, taking time to like fold his clothes and clean up before he left. And now, Paul is shifting to saying, well, if that's true, what does that mean for you and what does it mean for me today? And he has been arguing and will keep arguing that what it means is we will be resurrected too. In other words, just as Jesus right now has a physical body resurrected, that's the first fruit, the down payment on the harvest, which is we will all be resurrected with physical bodies. But verse 23, he says, each in its own order. First Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So first Paul says, Christ is the first fruits of a greater harvest, the harvest being your and my resurrection. And then second, also in verses 20 to 23, Paul talks about Jesus as the second Adam. He says, we all, this is what he is saying with that terminology, we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. 
that we share a common humanity and by being born into Adam, we are all part of the same family tree. Now, if you go to ancestry.com, I doubt it will get you all the way back there. But Paul is saying, by very essence, you and I are part of Adam's family. Now, by the way, no matter how weird you think your upbringing was, Adam's family, not the Adam's family, 1D. But as Adam's children, we are all born into a world that has dissolution and decay and struggle and trouble. But Paul says, just like our natural birth puts us in that world, our supernatural birth in Christ puts us into a world that will undo all of that, what will make the world what it ought be, that will make us what we ought be. Paul says, Adam lost everything, but Christ gained it all back. And he gives us these two fundamental truths, that Christ is the first fruits, that he is the second Adam. Well, to sum all that up, what does it mean? What is going to happen? Here's what it means. When Jesus comes back, he's going to reign and rule over everything. And that gives us both freedom and fullness. And Paul, really now, I'm just moving to verses 24 to 28 in our passage. Look at how categorical the language is. Look down with me, verse 25. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, he has put everything under his feet. Verse 28, him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Paul is pounding home the fact that Jesus in his resurrection rule is categorically Lord of all. That when Jesus comes back, he won't rule some things, he won't rule a few things, that every bit of creation, to use Kuiper's phrase, every square inch will be something over which Jesus says, this one's mine, that he will rule it all. And that is incredibly important for you and me because what it does is give us a sense of the world to come. It's like it's the movie trailer. Um, Jesus' resurrection is a movie trailer. What do I mean? I mean this. You probably all watched Doctor Strange movie trailer, right? I want to get a sense of what this is going to be. Now, I got to confess, after the trailer, I was just as confused about Marvel's multiverse as I ever was before. But the trailer shows you what the full movie is going to be, at least in a little bit. Well, Jesus' resurrection is the movie trailer. This is the world that will come. This is the world that will be. This is what you can expect. And what we can expect is that Christ will rule over all things. That's why Paul writes verse 24. Look at verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Well, what would this mean, that Christ is going to rule everything? Two thoughts. First, it offers you and me freedom, freedom from suffering. We spend our lives often chasing freedom from suffering. Many of us would say at the beginning of this sermon, you know what? I'll settle for not even getting freedom of um, fullness of life. I would just love not to suffer. Many of us spend our personal lives trying to flee from it. Many of us spend our professional lives trying to decrease suffering for other people, whether that's as a soldier or a doctor or a medical professional or a counselor or a plumber. 
trying to help other people not suffer. And of course, in this life, we need to say clearly, it's a false hope. Here clearly, the gospel does not promise us a lack of suffering in this life. But the gospel does promise a lack of suffering when Jesus comes back. How, how do those fit together? Paul explains in verse 26. What does it mean that Christ has come? Well, why is suffering still here? It's because there is one enemy that is still there that has not been fully vanquished, that's still inside the wire, so to speak. That is death itself. But Paul lets us in on this amazing biblical tension that in Christ's life, death and resurrection, his first coming, he has defeated death. He has conquered death in the grave. There is no question who is supreme. But of course, in the life we live, death still seems to have this power. We will still die. And there is still grief and there is still struggle. How do these fit together? Well, Paul says it's because Christ has won the battle. Death truly is defeated, but the battle is not yet done. And so we live in this world where Christ has already delivered us from death, yet death still exists with its sting. But when he comes back one day, it will be gone. And he therefore offers a world where we can look and say there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering, no more struggle, a world where we really will have freedom from being the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And yet that's not enough for the Bible's vision of when Jesus comes back. The Bible doesn't just offer us freedom from our suffering. The Bible goes further. Jesus gives us in resurrection the fullness of life itself. Many of us struggle with bodies that are breaking down. We have chronic pain. We hurt because of it. And we would just love for the pain to go away. But God says it's not just that. If you're in a wheelchair, it's not just that someday it won't hurt. It's someday you will jump and dance and walk and run. Some of us struggle with minds that are breaking down. And, and we would settle to just not be in the pit, in the depths of struggle that we so often feel to just get level, but the Bible doesn't just offer us that. In resurrection, the Bible doesn't offer us just sort of a haze at 50%. It says that you and I will live a life of fullness and joy and excitement and verve and everything you dare not believe could be there for you. We all struggle with sin. We all live lives that at some level we know are not as we ought, and we'd settle just to not do all those terrible things. But what the scripture says is there will come a day where we won't simply avoid doing the terrible, we will do out of joy and love everything that would be good. We will be good to each other, both individually and as a society, things will be as they ought to be. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. And this is what I offer. You know, Elon Musk said something recently about a future worth getting excited about. And I don't know about you, but I don't care how much you rework Twitter. It's not going to end very well. But that's a future worth getting excited about. 
where there's no more pain and no more crying and no more tears, where we live a full freedom from suffering and live a life as life ought to be, as God always made it to be. I could get behind that. And that leads to the last question, well, what about now? That might be what's coming, but what does that mean for right now? And Paul's fundamental thesis, I would say, is that what we believe about the resurrection doesn't just affect then, it affects our lives right now. And in the time we've got left, just two thoughts. One, it lets us live a life of consistency and authenticity. And two, it lets us live a life free of fear. Consistency and authenticity, what Paul sees here is that if we really get the resurrection, our lives will suddenly become consistent with what we say. Now, in verse 29, he points out that the Corinthians are a walking contradiction. And I gotta tell you, if you look at verse 29 in your Bible, we're staring down a rabbit hole that I don't really wanna jump in. Um, But we got to at least a little bit. We gotta say something. Um, The Corinthians, apparently, some among them were being baptized on behalf of people who had already died as if in some way, shape, or form that would sort of move people along or give some sort of help or blessing to them. What can we say about this? Um, First, here's what we gotta say. Nobody really knows exactly what they were doing or why they were doing it or what they thought would happen. This is the only time this gets mentioned in the Bible and that alone should tell us that means it's almost certainly not normative, not something that we ought to be doing. Um, More broadly, Orthodox historic Christian belief has always been very careful to base our doctrines on bunches of verses. Cults, groups that depart from true Christianity, will often base a practice or a doctrine on a single obscure verse. Many of you may know that this practice of being baptized for the dead is very evident in Mormonism. That's what you ought not do. That's what happens when you depart from Christian orthodoxy. You take an obscure verse and turn it into a practice. This was only happening in Corinth, and we don't even know what it was, and that alone is pretty good evidence it's not something you and I should be doing. Beyond that, here's a general rule for reading in the New Testament letters. If you're reading in Corinthians and you find out the Corinthians were doing it, you probably shouldn't. (laughs) Now, What's Paul doing then? Why doesn't he call this out? Well, probably because if Paul was gonna take this time in the letter to call out every single thing the Corinthians were doing and correct it, this letter would be the size of your whole Bible. Paul's not validating this behavior. Paul is simply pointing it out as an example of where their lives and their beliefs were completely inconsistent. They say they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but then they're doing something that only makes sense if apparently there's some life after death. Otherwise, why would you bother to do this, Paul says. So he's not condoning the practice. He's simply pointing out, wow, your life says you believe something that you don't say you believe. Well, before we go on, maybe we should ask, where might that be true of us? And let me suggest here two applications of that. First, if you're here as a non-Christian, as a not follower of Jesus, dragged here by family or by pressure, here by accident or here by investigation, but you're here as one of our guests, you don't follow Jesus, let me suggest that there are all sorts of causes that you appreciate deeply 
and I would say you should, but they might not be consistent with what you say you believe. I hope dearly, and we would be with you, that you would work tirelessly to stop human trafficking, that you would work against the sex trade, that you would work against racism, that you would work against sexism, and many other isms. But why should you? I agree you should. We agree you should. I wish and I hope we would and you would work harder than you do. And yet, what's at the root of that? Well, I was coming in from the backyard, um, had a huge clump of dirt on my shoe. Some of you have heard me tell this story when you're in new members class. And if you're getting the second version of it, I apologize. I hope it'll be the same. Um, About to walk in the back door, you see the rug and you go, uh, no. And so, back off pull off my shoes, scrape up off the step, this huge clump of dirt. And then just absentmindedly, I took my shoe and went and shattered it into a bunch of bits. Now, not one of you hears that story and says, how dare you, you evil human being? How dare you rearrange that clump of dirt into a different configuration of atoms? That's wrong. You don't do that, right? But if I were to pull off my shoe and walk down into the second row and pick out Burley here and do the same thing to Burley's head, you would say, you can't do that. How dare you? That's wrong, and I agree it's wrong, but why do you think it's wrong? Well, you think it's wrong because innately you realize that Burley is worth more than a clump of dirt. Do you agree? Amen? Somebody give me an amen here. Now, but here's the thing, why should you believe that? If all you think that yourself or Burley or that woman who was trafficked or anyone else is, is a clump of atoms that happen to stick together and over enough eons and enough eons and enough eons and enough random chance and enough long time, eventually you got a so complex clump of dirt that it's Burley, well, that can't generate the moral obligation you feel. In essence, you're living when you oppose these things that you should oppose, that we should oppose with a recognition that people are something more. Your life might not be as consistent with what you believe as you think it is. Maybe it's worth taking another look, just like Paul asked the Corinthians to in saying, maybe the belief system underneath that needs to get reoriented so that you have a consistent life. Now, Christians, I mean, most people here, I'm at a Christian worship service preaching the Bible, so most of us probably already follow Jesus. Um, Do you realize we need the same thing? We also need to be able to live a life consistent with the gospel we say we follow. Uh, The entire origin of this letter, in fact, is Paul trying to point out to the Corinthians that they're not really living out the faith that they say they embrace. It explains the sort of really rough end of this passage. If you look at the last few verses, Paul pretty much sort of slaps them down and says, quit sinning. What's with that? Well, if you go home and read the book of Corinthians front to back this afternoon, you're probably going to come out and say, Man, they say they follow Jesus, but they seem to be following their world and all of its standards a whole lot more than they seem to be following Jesus. And you'd be right. 
And of course, then we, I hope it doesn't take long before the penny drops and we say, and so do we. You know, back to the beginning question, where are we adopting our world's understanding of what will give us fullness? What will give us life? What will give us freedom? Where do we actually need a consistency of life in the gospel that we have hidden from or run from or put our heads in the sand because it's a whole lot more convenient to do the opposite? In this life now, the gospel offers us a consistent, authentic life before the Lord. And last thing, quickly, it offers us a freedom from fear. Look at verses 30 to 32. Paul, because he had grasped this truth of the resurrection, was free to be a wild man for Jesus. He terms it dying daily. He could lay it all out there for the Lord. He says, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. We have no idea if that's metaphorical or physical, but either way, Paul was able to live with almost a reckless abandon for Jesus because he knew the reality of resurrection. Paul was able to live with a freedom to risk it all and gain it all because he understood what really was true for those who follow Jesus. And we need to learn this. I say we need to learn this because we usually, I usually live with a lot of fear. We fear when we go into the classroom or into the lunchroom that if we say the wrong thing, we'll get mocked. We fear that we're not going to get the next step up on the ladder corporately. We fear that we haven't laid away enough money to do well in the rest of life. We fear that we will be ostracized or put into trouble or suffer. And we need to find and learn a freedom that Paul has. Paul says, look, the worst thing that this life can dish out to you and me is death, which is only the entryway to the best thing that life could ever give you the fullness and freedom of the gospel. Now, that's not a license to live foolishly or recklessly, but it is a license to live boldly, with joy, with verve, with self-sacrifice, with confidence to maybe live the way our Lord Jesus himself lived. Because Paul's thesis at the end of this is very simple. What we believe about what's going to come, our resurrection following Jesus makes every bit of difference for how we actually live the life we live now. So let's pray. Father, would you take these truths that we've barely scratched and put them deeply inside us? We need you to convict us by your Holy Spirit to make us different people We pray for freedom from fear. We pray for fullness of life, that we would be people who would be yours. And for that reason, your people in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.